This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a Black left perspective. I'm Margaret Kimberly, along with my co-host Glenn Ford. Coming up, Black people in Britain go to prison at roughly the same rate as African-Americans. And British activists are also demanding prison and police abolition. Dr. Gerald Horn says the United States is finding out that it's no longer a unipolar world, with Washington in command of everybody else. And we'll hear two essays from prisoners of the American mass black incarceration regime. But first, Sama Maganasise is a justice fellow at the Center for Constitutional Rights and an organizer with the group called Survived and Punished. Police claim they are the force that fights for the rights of victims, but in fact, says Cisse, the police, prosecutors, and prisons only create more victims. She explains. I am a member of Survived and Punished New York, which is a part of a larger coalition of Survived and Punished chapters that currently are in California and in Chicago. So Survived and Punished is a national prison industrial complex abolition coalition. And we believe that prisons, detention centers, all forms of law law enforcement and punitive prosecution are rooted in systems of violence. So Survived and Punished uses prison industrial complex abolition as a framework and practice towards ending the criminalization, imprisonment, policing, and surveillance of survivors of domestic and sexual violence. And this work is really important because we know this type of targeting and criminalization is especially true for Black, queer, Indigenous, and immigrant survivors. And why did you pick the words survived and punished? What do those words mean to you? Yes, I was not a part of the forming of survived and punished, so I I can't speak to why those were the words that were chosen at the time. But in my understanding, the work that we do is really trying to highlight how the criminal system, the criminal punishment system, really uses survivors as a tool to further criminalization, right? So if you talk to law enforcement, to prosecutors, they will say that their whole existence and the work that they do is to protect survivors, to protect people who are harmed by other individuals or by certain systems, and that's the work that they're doing. But what we're trying to point out is that oftentimes, actually, survivors are punished. They are punished for surviving either interpersonal violence by acts of survival, whether that is trying to defend themselves against various forms of abuse. The system then turns around and punishes them for that survival and says that they are not deserving of the protection that the system claims to be providing for other people. So essentially, survive and punish as a statement is saying that survivors, and like I was saying, particularly Black, queer, Indigenous, and immigrant survivors, are punished by our criminal legal system by the very nature of the prison industrial complex, they are punished for whatever acts of survival they engage in, and that the system is actually not in place to keep survivors safe. 
And in the case of the organizations you work with, a particular woman's survival was at stake. Her name was Marissa Alexander. Yes. So I think Marissa Alexander's case is a great example of the work that Survive and Punish does. So I was not involved in the organizing around Marissa's case. But just for some background, for folks who may not know, in May 2012, Marissa Alexander was prosecuted for aggravated assaults uh, and weapons charges because she fired a warning shot after her husband attacked her and threatened to kill her, right? So this happened in 2010, the incident where she fired the shot. And then in 2012, she was prosecuted and, and charged with these things. And I think what's even more ridiculous, if you will, about Marissa Alexander's case is that this is in Florida, the same that Trayvon Martin could be killed because individuals feared for their life or because of stand your ground laws or whatever you want to say. But for this Black woman, for Marissa Alexander, who was in her home and fired a warning shot that killed no one because she feared for her life and was trying to defend herself, the system decided that she needed to be punished and proceeded to prosecute her. So a lot of organizers around the country worked to really elevate Marissa's case. She was, I believe, facing a minimum, a mandatory minimum of 20 years in prison at the time. And there was a lot of advocacy that happened, like I said, various organizers, some of them who are now involved with Survive and Punish, to really show the hypocrisy of the system and to really highlight the injustice in Marissa's case. And so thankfully, Marissa Alexander is out of prison and did not serve the 20 years in prison, but she did go to prison. She was prosecuted and she did spend time in prison for that. And this is what Survive and Punish truly tries to highlight is that how is it that Marissa Alexander, a survivor of violence who was really trying to do what she needed to protect herself, fired a warning shot? How is it that she became the individual who was prosecuted? And it's because these systems, again, don't really exist to protect people, but rather to further criminalize and create chaos and harm in people's lives. Your organization, Survived and Punished, is made up of three affiliated collectives, and each of those three has a somewhat different approach to the problem of violence against women. Yeah, so I, I do want to say that while the issue of criminalized survival, domestic violence, sexual violence, interpersonal violence does impact women at a higher rate, Survive and Punish does not position itself as an organization that solely works with women. You know, we work with women, non-binary folks, trans folks. We work with basically anyone who survives, who is a survivor and has been punished by the system. It just so happens in the society that we live in, a majority of those people are women. But yes, yeah, so I wouldn't say that we necessarily approach the issue differently, because like I said before, we use prison industrial complex abolition as a framework to end these types of criminalization and these types of harm. I think our focus is a little different. So like I said, I'm a member of the New York chapter. And so in New York, a lot of our work is around mass commutation. So trying to push Governor Cuomo to use the power that he has in New York to release people 
to basically shorten end people's sentences and allow them to be released from prison. So that's a huge campaign that we do. We visit individuals who are detained in New York state prisons who identify as survivors. We get their stories. We have their stories concise on our website. And there's various forms of advocacy that we have been doing since our founding in 2018 of the New York chapter to really push Cuomo, Governor Cuomo, to provide more commutations than he is currently providing. And then outside of that, we also do work around supporting people who are incarcerated. So we have a newsletter that's an inside-outside newsletter. So that means people who are incarcerated and, again, identify as survivors can contribute to the newsletter. People who are on the outside members of our coalition can also contribute to the newsletter. And the newsletter is sent inside to people as a way to share stories, poems, whatever it is that will uplift others. And then we also do work to put money on people's books while they're incarcerated, and then I personally and some other folks who are part of Survive and Punish New York do what's called a like a mass defense camp- campaign. And so that means we're sort of like the case of Marissa Alexander, where there were organizers really uplifting her case as a way to say free Marissa, but also to say free all survivors of criminalized violence or all survivors who are criminalized for surviving. We are supporting currently a survivor here in New York City named Tracy McCarter, who has been criminalized by the Manhattan DA's office for defending herself against her abusive husband. Survived and Punished, as you said, calls itself an abolition organization. Lots of organizations these days say that they are abolition, but it seems that for some of them, this is just an in-principle kind of statement with no real game plan for dismantling this system in the foreseeable future. Yes, I think as we've seen in the United States, prison abolition as a concept has been popularized, if you will, and there are more people talking about abolition, especially after the killing of George Floyd and the mass uprisings that occurred during the summer and are still ongoing. However, prison abolition has been around for a very long time, not just as a concept, but as a practice, right? Where people have been saying, we understand that these systems of criminalization actually are not here to protect us and cause even more harm. And so we're going to do what we need to do to protect our communities and ourselves and not engage in the system. So, you know, there have been people who for decades have been not only teaching and writing about prison abolition, but actually taking the necessary steps to get us to abolishing these systems. So in Survived and Punished, we understand and we organize to decriminalize efforts to survive violence. We organize to free criminalized survivors and to abolish gender violence, policing, prisons, and deportations because we understand that for many survivors, gender-based violence is bound up, right, in the systems of incarceration and in police violence. And so we call for the immediate release of all survivors of violence and all who are in prison for survival actions. And so while I agree that there are a lot of spaces, people, organizations that are new to abolition, the folks who founded Survive and Punish are individuals like Maryam Kaba, who have been for years, right, 
speaking about abolition and also practicing abolition through transformative justice, through supporting people who are incarcerated and fighting for their release, through ensuring, like a lot of our organizers did here in New York, that the city does not build new jails while they're closing Rikers, through ensuring that the DA offices are held accountable for how they also contribute to the mass criminalization of individuals in our communities, and that DA offices should not be getting more money to prosecute people because, you know, as people are calling for the defunding of the police, we would say yes, the police are terrible and they need to be defunded, but so are the DAs, right? So are the district attorney offices. They don't need more money. So I view, speaking personally for myself, and I also think it could be applied generally to survive and punish New York, abolition as steps, right? Like there's a broader concept of abolition, a vision for the future that we're working towards in which these systems of criminalization don't exist. But it also means in the present, right, we're taking actual steps to ensure that we get there. And so that means supporting people who are incarcerated. That means pushing for people to be released. That means ensuring that there are no new jails or new prisons that are built or um, filled with bodies, right? Um, That means during the work to really break down the system tile by tile and also in our own lives, beyond the system itself, in our own lives, ensuring that ideas of criminalization and punishment, which in the United States were brought up with, the idea that like in order for us to have accountability, you need criminalization and you need punishment, trying to dismantle those ideas. I think something that's important about the work that I do, both with the Center for Constitutional Rights and with Survive and Punish, is the importance of understanding that all these systems of oppression are intersected. So my work personally focuses on the intersection of criminalization, migration, gender justice, here in the U.S. and globally. Or more holistically, I would say my life work is abolishing oppressive and harmful systems and building a world where Black people globally have what we need to be free and to live abundant lives. And I think the mistake that we often make in whether it's pushing for a world for for abolition, for a world where people can live abundant lives and where these systems of criminalization don't exist is we create silos of work in thinking that, for instance, folks who are doing immigration justice work do this work separate of folks who are doing criminal justice work or folks who are focused on gender justice or ending um, gender-based violence work in a silo separate from all of these systems. And I think what you realize is that We need to understand these struggles, whether it's for racial justice, immigrant justice, criminal justice, as all intersected, and really find a way to create a mass movement that really show how criminalization is the thread in all these various forms of oppression. And I think that's what Survived and Punished does so well. So within chapter in California, they do a lot of work around folks who are criminalized by the immigration and the criminal system, right? So these are survivors of gender-based violence, oftentimes Black or Asian folks who are criminalized by both systems, who, because of their immigration status, after they serve time in the prison system, are then transferred to ICE detention facilities. And so then there's like even further punishment, and then the state is trying to deport them. And just showing how all of these systems, right, work together, all of these systems are part of the prison industrial complex. 
and how it's so much bigger than saying like get rid of private prisons that house people for criminal convictions but rather saying our entire system as it exists focuses on criminalization and causes so much harm not only for the person who's criminalized but for their families for their entire community and that in order for us to actually get to an abolitionist future we need to recognize that all our struggles are intertwined and really find ways to create these mass movements that connect all of these issues. That was Sama Maganasise of Survived and Punished, speaking from New York City. Many Americans are unaware that Black people in Great Britain have a long history of urban rebellions against racist policing. We spoke with Dr. Elliot Cooper, a research associate at the University of Greenwich who sits on the board of the Monitoring Group, which challenges state racism and racial violence. Dr. Elliot Cooper is co-author of a scholarly article on Britain, race, and the criminal justice system titled Moral Panics in the 21st Century. The article you're talking about was written in conjunction with a black community organization called the Newham Monitoring Project based in the east end of London called Newham. And it was first set up to deal with racial violence from fascist groups on the streets, attacking young black and South Asian people and other members of the community. But what the organisation quickly realised was that the more acute problem they were facing wasn't from the working class racists who who were brutalising people in the community. It was from the police. It was from the immigration and border authorities. It was from the prison system and other mechanisms of the state which were exploiting people at work, putting them in substandard housing, polluting and destroying the local ecology and the environment. And I think it's that structural racism, or maybe we might more accurately call it racial capitalism, that I think is the most pronounced and urgent issue. Racial capitalism is a term that has come into much more frequent use in the United States. Is it the same case in the UK? Uh, Yes. In fact, Cedric Robinson, when he was writing Black Marxism and coining the term racial capitalism, was actually living in London at the time, working at the Institute of Race Relations, a journal called Race and Class. And so that had a significant influence both here in Britain on journals like Race and Class and other Black radical publications like Race Today and others, as much as it did um, over in the United States. Now, when you talk about structural racism and interpersonal racism, I read your analysis. It looks to me like there's another way of seeing two different kinds of crises that afflict the Black community in Britain. One of the crises is due to the effects of racism on the community, and the other is the political or moral crises that are invented by the police, by the media, like, for example, the panic over gangs. And then those invented crises have deep consequences for the community. Yeah, I think you're completely right there. So one of the things, so that, that particular article draws on ideas of a, a guy called Stuart Hall, who some of our listeners might be familiar with, who wrote a book called Policing the Crisis back in the 1970s. And what he said in the 1970s, I think has a lot of kind of resonances today. Because capitalism, as we know, is crisis-ridden. Not only does it lead to economic crises of recession and unemployment and, and other forms of economic disruption, but also, of course, it leads to ecological and environmental crises. It leads to social and health crises. It leads to all of these other different forms of crisis. And of course, as we know, 
governments, most governments anyway, in capitalist societies are either unable or unwilling to effectively deal with these crises, right then, um, to effectively dismantle the systems of capitalist exploitation and destruction of the environment, extraction and violence that lead to these crises. So what do they do instead? They instead seek to conjure up or at least at the very least overplay other forms of crisis, very often a racial crisis, creating the impression that the real crisis that society is facing isn't economic or ecological or social or health or, or anything like that, but it's a racial crisis. There is a racial threat, be it through the gangster or the terrorist or the immigrant who's seeking to steal your job or your woman or your home or your or your culture or your identity and it's through these moral panics about national decline due to these racial threats that I think we see racism as, and racist forms of nationalism being articulated in countries like Britain but also I think to an extent in the United States. So these perceived moral crises, these invented crises, are really huge diversions from the problems that capitalism creates through its own contradictions. I think they're more than a diversion. Because governments in capitalist societies aren't able to deal with the economic and ecological and other social crises that capitalism creates, they face a, a period of political illegitimacy. Right, they have a crisis of legitimacy. These governments are not legitimate because they can't provide what we fundamentally need. And so in order to maintain their legitimacy, in order to maintain themselves in positions of power in society, they say, do you know what? We're not going to deal with this economic or ecological or social or health problems because there is a more urgent issue. And that issue is the issue of law and order, the issue of securing our borders, the issue of maintaining a strong national identity. And so it serves as this even more powerful force, I think, which not only distracts people from the real crises of capitalism, but re-entrenches the power of the capitalist state. And in that project, the capitalist state has the aid and assistance of especially the tabloid newspapers, which it looks from the U.S. like are much more powerful and much more incendiary than even in the United States. Uh, yes, I think you're completely right. I guess that your, the versions of tabloids that proliferate in the United States are more commonly parts of broadcast media, Fox News and others with their kind of more flamboyant and provocative articulations of, of nationalism and racism, which are more common in our print media. We don't really have a, a version of Fox News being broadcast in Britain, although we do have some very right-wing radio show hosts. And so, yes, we see these kind of images and ideas perpetuated through different sections of the media. But I would say principally by the right-wing press, like the Daily Mail, for instance, which people in the US might have heard of. But also, I wouldn't only lay blame at their door. We do see sections of the liberal media as well, such as The Guardian, also reproducing these kinds of racialized mythologies as well, in perhaps more subtle ways. Many folks in the United States don't realize that black British incarceration rates are in the same range as black American rates. In the United States, that situation, mass black incarceration, is seen by at least some sectors of the ruling class as a national embarrassment. Is there a similar response in the UK? Is it considered an embarrassment? 
I think that there is more of a denial than an embarrassment. I think that Britain is a lot more comfortable talking about class than it is race. And I think America is a lot more comfortable talking about race than it is the question of class. And so while it is often articulated that there are big problems with Britain's prisons being overcrowded and being places which don't serve the rehabilitative purpose that they purport to serve, there is far less talk of the racialized component of Britain's prisons. And it feels far more comfortable to point the finger at the United States as this big bogeyman where racism happens. Most Americans also don't realize that Britain had its equivalent of 1968, the year that in the United States a hundred cities burned. Britain had that kind of national trauma back in 2011. Correct, yeah, both in 2011 and in 1981. So in 1981, there was civil unrest across 30 cities across England following a policing campaign called Operation Swamp and what were called the Sus Laws, laws of suspicion, where the police were permitted to carry out stops, searches and arrests, as well as raids on the homes and businesses in black communities in cities all over the country. And urban rebellions, what often called by the black power press insurrections, arose in 1980, 1981 and 1985 uh, against Margaret Thatcher's government. And it was in the, those years in which we saw forms of colonial policing, before which had only been used in Britain's colonies and in the north of Ireland, being deployed on the British mainland against Britain's black communities for the first time. And again, as you've mentioned, in 2011, there were similar rebellions following the police killing of a black man called Mark Duggan in Tottenham, in North London, which began, obviously, in Tottenham in North London, but spread across London and then across the country for four days in the August of that year. In the UK, as in the United States, certain terms are racially coded. In the UK, the term gang means black. Yes, gang is a term which has been used historically in Britain since the, I think, around the 19th century, but was certainly reintroduced as a racial problem, borrowing from the United States in the late 90s and early 2000s. And it was it's through the creation of gangs databases where the police identify certain individuals or groups of individuals as being in a so-called gang and therefore surveilling them, monitoring them, harassing them, arresting, incarcerating them, uh, deporting them very often to Africa or the Caribbean and what have you, are the ways in which we see the racialized nature of this moral panic around the gang uh, manifesting itself in the lives of ordinary people. And that moral panic around gangs is kind of like the criminal justice child of the previous moral panic around muggings. And muggings also was black. Precisely. And muggings also, interestingly, was another concept borrowed from the United States. Before the 1970s, the word mugger didn't actually exist at all in Britain. And it's from the moral panic in the US around black people being muggers that the British government decided that it must also have a mugging problem, given that it has these deprived black inner city areas where, surprise, surprise, where people live in deprivation and social exclusion, criminality arises. And so it's through this pattern of racialization that they are able to project this menace, this racial folk devil, this black folk devil of the mugger upon black communities, justifying the kinds of the policing which led to the uprisings in the 1980s. 
and the British counterpart to stop and frisk. That kind of assault on the black community has to do with the term sus or suspicion. Correct. So following the rebellions of the 1980s, the sus laws were actually repealed, but they were replaced, unsurprisingly, with very, very similar powers. They're called the power to stop and search. And I guess maybe there's two kind of powers that were we would have been introduced since then, which are very similar to the SUS laws. The first was the Terrorism Act, which was introduced by Tony Blair, which enabled the police to use stop and search powers to stop and search anyone who they suspected of course being a terrorist. And the second one is a power called the Public Order Act, which was used originally to police people suspected of violence at football matches or what you guys call soccer matches, but is now generally used to impose those kinds of draconian police powers upon working-class black communities across the country. So far in this interview, I've mostly been asking you questions comparing the UK criminal justice or injustice situation with the United States. But now I'm going to ask you, how do the movements against criminal injustice differ in the UK from the United States? So I guess there's two or three things that, that are markedly different between Britain and the United States. Of course, the United States is a separate colony. And Britain, is, of course, is the old centre of empire. And so the intensity of violence of a settler colony is far more pronounced than it is in the centre of empire. And I think this settler mentality still exists in the US, where you have a very militarised police force and, of course, an armed civilian population, which means that, unsurprisingly, the intensity of violence of the state, of the state apparatus is far more pronounced than in Britain. So, for instance, in Britain, on average, around one person a week dies at the hands of police, which, even once you um, count for the population, is far lower than that of the US. So I think that's one thing. And the second thing is that, in relation to policing in prisons anyway, there is a far less far along in the privatisation of prisons. There are some privatised prisons run by G4S, but the majority are still run by the state, whereas I know that private prisons are far more common in the US context. So I think those are probably the two most important differences. But I think that despite the fact that, of course, the violence is far more pronounced or intense in the US, doesn't mean that these kinds of forms of racist state violence aren't connected. They're deeply connected. Very similar multinational corporations run these prisons. Very similar racist ideas are shared across these different nations. And of course, the resistance that we see against policing in the prisons is also connected between Britain and the United States as well. And there have been there's a long history of transatlantic conversation between black and other oppressed communities um, on different sides of the Atlantic, which I think are, is really important as well. That was Dr. Adam Elliott Cooper speaking from the University of Greenwich in Britain. Dr. Gerald Horn is professor of history and African-American studies at the University of Houston. Horn, a prolific author, was interviewed on the Sputnik radio program, The Critical Hour, with Dr. Wilmer Leon and Garland Nixon in Washington. Dr. Leon noted that President Joe Biden has been making noises about maintaining strong U.S. economic sanctions against governments he doesn't like and insisting that U.S. allies go along with Washington's dictates. But Europe seems tired of being bossed around by the U.S., as Dr. Horn explains. 
I think what's happened is that Washington has been overusing the sanctions weapon. And I think that's due in part to the fact that Washington has not seemed to realize that the post-1945 dispensation, when the United States strode the planet like a grand colossus, that that period is over, that you are in a multipolar world, as you just suggested, not only with the rise of the European Union, but also China and Russia as well. But Washington does not want to accept that reality, so it blindly continues uh, exerting sanctions against various regimes, but it reminds me of what happens when you overuse antibiotics. What happens is that it oftentimes helps to ignite a process where different strains of viruses and different problems arise. And you see that precisely with the overuse of sanctions. For example, AsiaTimes.com just had an article about how China is contemplating the use of the so-called digital yuan or renminbi because Washington uses the leverage of the dollar, which is used promiscuously non-U.S. nations, to sanction these nations whenever it sees fit. If you have a digital yuan, a digital Chinese currency, that will circumvent that. Likewise, China is moving to price the, a barrel of oil in its currency rather than the dollar, and that too is a shot over the bow at U.S. imperialism as well. And likewise, with regard to the European Union. And so, once again, it seems that Washington is going to have to be forced to acknowledge the reality that we're in a new world right now, and the sooner the United States acknowledges that, the better off we'll all be. Dr. Horn, if you look at the EU deal with China, they saw something that was in their economic interest. If you look at Germany and Nord Stream 2, Germany simply saying, you know what, this will we'll be able to get cheap gas. France and Iran, France had a lot of, Renault, et cetera, had a number of significant deals in Iran. And when the U.S. pulled out and, and, and upped the sanctions, it hurt them and they were unhappy. I think what's going on is the U.S. uses sanctions and everything else first and foremost to maintain its empire, to maintain its hegemony over everyone else. So off, uh, uh, there are times when the sanctions aren't even used for what they're specifically claimed to be used for. They're simply used to maintain power. But the other individual nations are looking at their strategic and economic interests and they're saying, look, you know, don't be beaten up on us. We got it. We, we, we have things we need to do. And they're recognizing that the U.S. is not an ally. The U.S. doesn't see them as an ally. The U.S. sees them as a vassal. And when they are not acting as a vassal, they're not serving the purpose that the U.S. needs and they must be beaten into submission and they ain't having it anymore. What are your thoughts about my evaluation? Well, obviously, it's spot on, and you need look no further to a recent British Broadcasting Corporation, BBC documentary on the Trump years. He presents a scalding and scorching portrayal, not only of the former Open the Oval Office himself, uh, Agent Orange, but also the United States, which, after all, elected this, this nincompoop uh, to the highest office in the land. I think that that is quite revealing because the United States is going to have to rely ever more on London uh, in order to retain whatever global leverage it has. And with regard to the Nord Stream 
II deal. This is the pipeline that Russia is building uh, into Germany to carry natural gas. What's striking about that is that it's very revealing of the utter hypocrisy of U.S. foreign policy because it has little to do with real or imagined behavior on the part of Moscow, that is to say these sanctions. It really is a battle royale between natural gas producers in Russia and natural gas producers in Louisiana, Texas. The United States would want Germany to buy U.S. natural gas, not Russian natural gas. And so it concocts these various pretexts to put sanctions to keep Germany from buying Russian natural gas so that that money, those euros, will flow across the Atlantic to the United States. It's utter hypocrisy. But it's, it's backfiring because if you look at the decades-long U.S. sanctions against Cuba, for example, you would think, you might imagine that this island of less than 12 million can hardly stand up to a giant like the United States of 320, 330 million. But one of the ways that Cuba has been able to stand up, particularly in recent years, is growing ever closer to the People's Republic of China. And one has to wonder, does it make sense from the point of view of the national security of U.S. imperialism to have China so deeply entrenched in Cuba, not least because the United States refuses to pursue a realistic policy towards Havana? And and to your point, it, the article says, for all the recent rhetoric about competing with China or treating Beijing as a, quote, strategic competitor, end quote, the EU's actions, especially Germany's, seem to be signaling a more pragmatic, less confrontational approach. And it's very interesting that that statement would be made as either late yesterday or today, we got the readout between President Xi and President Biden, where Xi is telling Biden, hey, we got to get along or you're going to blow this thing up. And the readout we get from the United States is, oh, Biden stood strong against Xi and told Xi what to do and all of this kind of stuff. And Germany and Germany, Merkel is signaling that the agreement with China that a new Cold War between East and West is not only inevitable, but undesirable. So the United States, just through its sanctioning policy and its rhetoric, is just alienating itself. And you made the point about London. Now that London's no longer in the EU, that seems to be an even further drift. I hope I didn't ramble. Not at all. And I would say, with regard to the European Union, I'm not sure if it's a substantive difference if the EU plays number two to Washington or it plays number two to Beijing. And in fact, it might be profitable to play number two to Beijing because at least you can expect a kind of normalcy and consistency in foreign policy uh, with, as opposed to the United States, which lurches like a drunk every four years from one shambolic administration uh, to another. Uh, with regard to Chancellor Merkel, recall that at the virtual Davos summit that took place just days ago, uh, she went to great lengths and to great pains to echo the prior remarks of President Xi Jinping, who called for and endorsed multilateralism, as did Chancellor Merkel, who in going forth with that particular line, 
also said that this idea of unilateralism embedded and inherent in so-called America First was totally unrealistic. And finally, with regard to that phone call between uh, President Biden and President Xi, I think it was a bad idea. It backfires on many levels. Uh, number one, uh, there is a historic animosity and resentment in China with regard to being lectured to uh, by these Europeans and Euro-Americans. Uh, after all, uh, it was a Chairman Mao Zedong himself who said that the Chinese Revolution triumphed on October 1st, 1949, marked the end of what they call the century of humiliation. And it seems that Mr. Biden is trying to reignite a new century of humiliation. And secondly, it opens the door. What I mean is, is that Mr. Biden supposedly was lecturing Mr. President Xi with regard to alleged human rights violations in China. Well, I hope and I would imagine that going forward, uh, President Xi is going to lecture Mr. Biden about human rights violations in the United States of America. The fact that the Pentagon has to go on pause in order to seek out and search out white supremacists in their ranks, the fact that you had an insurrection, an armed insurrection on Capitol Hill just weeks ago, the fact that black citizens get shot down on the street like dogs with no due process of law by police officers, I would hope that President Xi raises those concerns with Mr. Biden, and I would hope that President Xi goes further and raises those concerns at the Human Rights Council of the United Nations in Geneva, Switzerland, which the United States has had the good sense to rejoin. One of the things I think is important that the article brings out, it says, from your perspective, there is no need any longer for an American security umbrella since there are no great power threats to them. China wants their business. Russia wants to sell them gas. So it's hard. And, and I think that's one of the problems. NATO, a lot of people get very, very rich selling arms as a result of NATO. And the fact of the matter is the two powers that were previously viewed as security and military threats are now saying, hey, man, we want to do business with you. We're trying to make money. Everybody's trying to get paid, Dr. Horn. And it's hard to argue that people who are trying to make money off of you are really there to, they, they you know, they want to come across the Baltics and blow Germany to smithereens when they're, when, when they're their number one, they, you know, they may be their number one uh, customer for gas. And I think that's one of the things that's causing Europe to see this thing differently. What are your thoughts? Well, there's a further wrinkle to what you just said, which is that in light of the United States putting forward this idea of climate change as the center of foreign policy, that means de-emphasizing fossil fuels, which means presumably de-emphasizing the need to sell arms to Saudi Arabia. But it seems to me that the merchants of death in the United States will have to find a new market to compensate for that uh, presumed reduction in arms sales to Saudi Arabia and their genocidal war in Yemen, for example. And so they'll be putting ever more pressure on the so-called allies in Europe to make up the shortfall. And likewise, they'll be putting ever more pressure on India to do the same in light of India's key role in the encirclement of China. But that'll be difficult because India has entrenched arms contracts with Russia and France uh, going back decades. So once again, you see that U.S. imperialism is entangled in a knot of contradictions from which there is no easy escape. That was Dr. Gerald Horn speaking on Sputnik Radio in Washington. This week, we're featuring two items from deep inside the U.S. prison gulag. Laura Taylor is locked up in the Pennsylvania state penal system. She's composed a message to the guards that boss her around every day and night. 
Ms. Taylor calls it a resignation letter. Dear controller of my days, I want to be you, earning the inalienable right to rule over the stooped women of waywardness. My desire is to have my polyester pants weighted down by the keys that secure each cell door. I wish to rule what's behind each one of them and have no clue to what key goes to what door. I want to laugh about that with the captives. I dream of setting the tone at 6 a.m. for the offenders by refusing to answer simple questions, slamming doors, or glaring at them. My mood would make or break their day. I want your rights. I'd feel enlivened having inmates clear a path for my presence without me uttering a word. Behind my booming voice, I would observe these same women keep lowered gazes while jerking, recoiling, and scurrying out of my way. Every day, I sit for many hours but run to protect my pals from the danger of a 90-pound, detoxing, depressed female fingernails. I want the constitutional right to look down on those that put themselves there. I want your innocence. I wish to sleep soundly after a cleansing thought of those people getting their just dues and safer communities. I want to slip into your smooth, purified skin and know what it's like to have never done anything that bad in my life. I want to feel guiltless over how I treat them. My clean conscience entitling me to a queen's throne amongst slaves with questionable acts in my past, as I surely would be. I smirk and never question my motive, my character, or my spirit as you. I want your life. When I get promoted, as I most assuredly will, I will thank the minorities, the addicts, the poor, and obviously the dumbest criminals. I'd be guaranteed stability via the misery, mistakes, circumstances, and sufferings of another. I wouldn't flinch while building my career on a graveyard. Surely, I'd see this place with its electrified fences, its mace-loaded assault rifles, and revolving door as a necessity. I long to be you. If I were you, walking past me, I'd feel so much better about my life. I could do a quick comparison, clear my throat, and look for someone to speak to that's just behind me. I crave thinking of vacation time while whistling, just like you. If I were you, I'd ignore me. As a matter of fact, I want a do-over. My name is Laura Taylor. I'm a life worthy of progress. That was Laura Taylor with an essay composed for Prison Radio. Kareem Charles Diggs is also locked up in the Pennsylvania prison system. The title of his presentation is COVID-19, A Reconstruction. A cure for all our diseases, including COVID-19, and massive imprisonment may very well be found in the period of reconstruction. COVID-19 has inspired the medical community to produce several vaccines. The vaccines will perform a number of miracles. First, it may prevent persons from catching COVID. Secondly, it will cure some persons once they have the virus. There is a possibility that others will be unable to benefit from the vaccine because of underlying illnesses. You would think with the numerous corporations developing vaccines that political, religious, judicial, police, prison, and medical officials would ensure that the millions of persons in state and federal prisons would be on the first list of receiving vaccines because of our unique and cruel circumstances. There should have been a national network to deal with the citizens 
who are most likely to catch the disease from those in the community. Prisoners did not create the COVID-19. It has been brought into the prisoners by the free people in the society. At least our Pennsylvania governor has made the decision that Pennsylvania prisoners will get the vaccine. This is good news, and we respect that decision. We need one man per cell. Instead, the two men in the cell. Of course, other states have dormitories and have primitive conditions. At least we have disinfectant, showers, masks, and soap and water at all times. Besides releasing prisoners, I do not know what else could be done. Why has most states not included prisoners in the population that should be vaccinated as soon as possible? This may be the first time in American history that nobody can charge prisoners with creating COVID-19. I am a student that pays attention to the political stories being played each day in prison and society. I have been in this university four plus decades. There has yet to be any summer vacations, graduations, ceremonies, marriages, births, retirements, or unification with females. Any solutions, cures, have been declared off-limits. It is evident that the legislatures and senators do not have any reasonable empathy or concern in recognizing the humanity of prisoners. The only way to address the massive imprisonment and seriously seek solutions, first to accept the inequity, inequalities and injustices, unfairness that exists in the process of massive imprisonment of people. The convictions are unjust and most life sentences were not justified nor was the arena of trial fair. Life sentences and death sentences are founded on lies, false testimony, and racial animus by the prosecutors and the agents they use. Thus, to maintain over 100,000 women and men serving life in prison is morally and actually legally unjust. COVID-19 only adds to the host of injuries inflicted upon the millions of women, children, and men who languish in the prisons across the land. The root of the ongoing elimination of human beings from society dates back to slavery. Some Americans are still fighting the Civil War. Some Americans believe America is only for white people. These are the people who are doing everything oppressive under the color of law to drive African Americans into the sea. Trump was a reproduction of the Civil War mentality. He does not know of any other way to function. How many are in the justice, court, judicial systems, prisons, police, medical systems, operating under the protection and color of law? The prisons are code, and code 19 may give us some idea of the disease or racism and how terror really works. I continue to state the Federalist Papers by Madison, number 51, warns us about the lawmakers oppressing the minority population and unwanted populations. Mandatory sentences, severe punishment, and disease is why we need reconstruction. Chance to design and develop a society where we can breathe and exist without being murdered by anyone, not just the police. There, there has yet to be a 
dedicated movement that is consistent with finding a place for African Americans to live in peace and happiness. Ever since our presence in America, we have sought acceptance by white people. All we seem to want is to be safe and get along. But we want it most of all to be left alone to make a life for ourselves and family. Reconstruction was our effort to lift ourselves out of slavery and all the residue of slavery. Reconstruction was an effort to be men and design a community for the betterment and happiness as human beings without depending and begging the white society. This Reconstruction was an honest man's way to earn his place in the history of humanity. This historical mission was aborted and crushed by the KKK and all its supporters. It was destroyed by the worst violence ever inflicted on a nonviolent people. The end result was African people in America were put in a worse condition than slavery. Some believe it was worse than slavery. Today we are suffering the results of repression, massive imprisonment, that the baby birthed from the intoxication of hate and violence interjected into the system that choked the desire to reconstruct our human dignity and nature. The imagination of a true freedom was polluted and corrupted with centuries of fear and suffering. A new reconstruction needs to be imagined with the principal theme is communities based upon a design created by us and where black lives dictate the world we want to live in. Shall we create a new reconstruction? The diseases of COVID-19, racism, massive imprisonment, and legislative repression will continue to camouflage justice. President Nixon made a statement in his tapes. Everyone knows that the blacks are the problem in America. Nixon tapes continues to haunt us. Reconstruct, reconsider, rethink, worship of the two-party system. We need solutions, not parties every four years. You've been listening to the Black Agenda Report on the Progressive Radio Network. Information for liberation.